said that this morning. I hope that you are as well. We are one week away from Christmas, as crazy as that is, and that means we're only two weeks away from 2017. And as I look at Christmas and I look at all the things about Christmas, I got to thinking this week, this is going to be my 41st Christmas. And uh, some of you, you've had way more than that. You're like, that's just, that's just child play. And, uh, but the thing that I was thinking about this week is the, the familiarity of Christmas and the familiarity of the, of the Christmas story. And, and as I was thinking about that, I, I was thinking for 41 Christmases, um, I think I've probably been in church for all 41 of them. Uh, not saying the fact that my, my family was great uh, church attenders, but we are great Christmas Easter attenders. And so uh, through that part of my life, I, I can't say I remember the first one when I was 11 months old, but as you walk through it and you look at it, I, I know that, that uh, probably of those 41 times I've gone around the Christmas time, I've heard the same story. And the, the crazy thing about the familiarity about that, that Christmas story and, and understanding the story and hearing the story and, and seeing it play itself out, it becomes familiar and familiar sometimes, as they say in, uh, in uh, you know, the, as the saying might go, it's familiarity breeds contempt. And contempt is basically the fact that, that we, we miss what we have because we're just so familiar with it. The, the story becomes lessened. And as I... As I was planning on what to speak about over the, over the four weeks leading up to Christmas, over the Advent season, or whatever you, you might want to call it, I really struggled with the Christmas time. And that's probably not the best thing to say as a pastor because Christmas time is supposed to be one of the most amazing times. But, but I really struggled with the idea of Christmas because of the fact that, that it's the same story every year. And when people come in, they hear the same story every year. Whether you go to this church or you go to that church or you go to any church, you're going to hear the same story every year. And you know the problem with the same story every year? is it loses its amazingness. And when it loses its amazingness, I think that's, that's a real problem because this is the most amazing story that's ever been told. This is the most amazing thing that, that we have a chance to wrap our heads around, the, the, the most amazing thing, the fact that God of the universe invaded human history by becoming a baby boy. That is amazing. But even when I say it, there's still kind of that mm-hmm. And there's more than an mm-hmm that's in it because it, God of the universe became a baby to invade human history because we needed to be saved. And he did that for you, and he did that for me. And that in itself was like, wow. But we lose the wow. So this Christmas season, I decided, you know, what we're going to do is we're, we're going to take a look. Because uh, I think the best way to break familiarity is to look at details. Because so many times, I'm not sure about you, but, but when we read the Christmas story. See, of those 41 uh, Christmases that I've been a part of, I'm pretty sure each and every single one of them, my parents made us read Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2 before we got to open presents. You know what that means to Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2? It's a story that got in the way of opening presents. And, and I'm just being really honest with you because as you roll through it, you're like, come on, really? No, this is what Christmas is all about. And you're like, uh-huh, I know. We got to get you the presents, though. You know, we're opening them for Jesus' sake, right? It's his birthday, so we're going to open presents for us. So that, that's our kind of mentality towards it all. It, it becomes where that, that same song, different verse kind of thing becomes familiar. So, so instead of just focusing on Christmas. I wanted to focus on the miracle of Christmas. And as we've looked at these four weeks, we've answered some questions. And those questions are the who and the what and the when, the where and the why and the how and the how much. Now, if you've uh, taken English and ever had to write an essay or anything like that, generally, 
the thing that they want you to do in that is to write the who and the what and the when, the where and the why and the how much and the how. And as you have all of those mixed into that, it helps us to develop the story, helps us to see the story for what it is. And as we are looking, we really broke down three different things so far, and we're going to break down kind of a fourth today. But the first one was the miracle of the moment. And that first week, uh, the miracle of the moment, we answered the question of when and where and how awesome in this, this whole story that God chose the right time and the right place and the right people and, and, and in the right time in this, this spectrum of, of history to bring Jesus into the world. And how amazing that it's just so coincidental that this happened and that happened and this happened and that happened for the story to work exactly the way that God had planned it out. And there was a miracle in that moment. And the second thing we looked at in the second week, we looked at the miracle and the message. And in that miracle and the message, we answered the question of who and what. So the first week was when and where. And then we looked at the who and the what. And the who and the what is the same answer. Because the who is Jesus and the what is Jesus. Because the what is the message that was brought. And there's a miracle in the message that came from heaven to, to live among us. And in that message, we see Jesus, who is the word, the word of God shared with us. And that's this mind-blowing for each and every one of us. But a lot of times, like I said, become become so familiar with the story, we miss that miracle. We miss the miracle of the moment. We miss the miracle of the method, and or the miracle of the message. And then the third week, we talked about the miracle of the method and how God did it, and how God's plan unfolded, and how it all tied together in this amazing way. But once again, like I said, if you've heard the Christmas story over and over and over again, we miss it. We miss those things. And today, what I want to do is I want to talk about the miracle of the manger. And last week we talked about this manger, and as the manger points to the cross, but I want to go a little bit further with it than I did even last week. And this miracle of the manger, really we're going to focus on the who. And we're kind of going back to this who again that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. But as we look at this who, I really just want to focus on one verse today. And I want it to be kind of the, the, the main theme of what we're talking about. And it's a verse that is found right in the middle of the Christmas story. And it's a verse that, that is found in Luke chapter 2. And maybe, like I said, you're like me and you've had to experience, and I say that had to in, in uh, a, a nice way, had to experience reading the Christmas story before you get to open your Christmas presents. So this Luke chapter 2 kind of gets lost. And the verse we're going to focus on is actually in chapter, chapter 2 verse 12. And what I want to do today is I, I want to, to show you that this is the first Christmas sermon that was ever preached and the most important Christmas sermon that was ever preached. And as we, we look at it, I'm going to give you some of the verses that lead up to it. And it talks about how the angel comes to the shepherds in the field and how important that really is. And, and so what I would love for you to do, if you have your Bibles with you, open up to Luke chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 8. And as we're in verse 8, we're going to, to move into verse 12 and kind of give you the context of what verse 12 looks like. So here's what it says, starting in verse 8 of Luke chapter 2. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Now, I just want to pause right there for just a second, because once again, we just read those verses. And as we read those verses, uh, maybe we picture a, a Christmas pageant of some sort, and oh, and there's shepherds down, they're like, oh, and they have that surprised look on their face in the Christmas pageant. Think about the job of a shepherd. The job of a shepherd is to hang out by yourself. For a long time, talking to sheep. 
Okay, that is your job. Now, I'm not sure about you, but if you've ever spent a lot of time by yourself, uh, I've related it to hunting. I remember my grandfather would be like, hey, you sit at this tree and just wait. Well, that sounds great. Uh, That's, it was just, you started talking to yourself, and then you started imagining things, and you started having these weird conversations with yourself, and all these things started to take place. You have to think, that's their daily life. And then an angel of the Lord blows out of heaven, and they're like, am I imagining this, or is this the real deal? I mean, think about the picture that's going on inside their head, and there's all these lights, and they're like, what is going on? It says they feared. I think that's a minor understatement about what was going on inside of their hearts and mind. So you pick it up there in verse 10, it says, and the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Now that verse there, when I hear that one right there, uh, it doesn't sound right. That The whole passage doesn't sound right. Why talk to shepherds? Why them? Why make the announcement? Why not go to religious leaders? Why not go to, you know, all these questions start to come up. But even more so, why this sign? I mean, this is going to be the sign for you that you're going to find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. It just doesn't sound right. I mean, the, the news that is right before it is the most amazing news that we could ever hear where it says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a what? A Savior. The thing that people have been waiting for for years and years and years and years. And then here's your sign. And I don't mean that in the, the, uh, the Bill Ingvall kind of way. Here's, here's the sign you get. And what's that sign? Well, it's a, it's a baby wrapped in cloth, lying in a manger. I mean, when you think about the word sign, when you think about the sign that's going to come down, think about the things that God has done to introduce himself to history. Think about the things that that God has done to, to place himself in front of human race. He's done things like part the Red Sea. That's a cool sign. Think about when, when he brought locusts and he did all the, the, all the seven signs in Egypt. And, you, and you, that's a cool sign. Think about even when Jesus was alive and, and he walked on water. Cool sign. Raising from the dead. Amazing sign. A baby lying in a manger with cloth wrapped around him. Kind of an ordinary sign. I mean, really, think about it for just a second. All these people came to Bethlehem, right? Because they were coming for the census. So my guess is there's other babies in the town. There's other toddlers in the town. There's, there's lots of things that are going on in the town. What makes this baby in this manger so special? What is it that, that, that makes this the sign? And I began to think about that, and I began to think about, uh, you know, why, why wasn't it the fact that, that here's the sign that's going to be for you. The, the moon is going to turn blood red, and all the stars are going to spell out Emmanuel. You know, why not? With a, you know, an arrow pointing down. Why not? Why just a, a baby in a, in a manger? And, you know, the funny thing is we look at this manger because that's the manger picture that we have from every Christmas pageant that we've ever had. So we decided to throw one up here, too. But that manger didn't even look like that in all reality. It was a feeding trough in a, in a carved half hole in a hill with some 
rocks built around it, so it wasn't probably even fully covered. I mean, you look at it and you go, okay, that's kind of an ordinary sign. But the more I even look at this verse, I got to thinking, and this will be a sign for you, and you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. I started writing some questions down. In what way is this baby a sign from God? Why did God choose to enter the human race like this? And why does the text mention anything about swaddling cloths? What are these parts to this verse as we look at that? And, and, and I believe that if we only had one verse to explain the Christmas story, Luke chapter 2, verse 12, might be the best verse to do it. Even though it's plain, even though it's simple, I think it says so much, and it's important to the circumstance we're looking at. As you look at it, and we might think, well, it was ordinary. But the question is, is was it? Was it really that ordinary? Because just for a moment, that, that, let's just pretend that's the only verse we know. What does this verse speak to us? Here's your sign. There's three things that we see, and the first thing that I see in it is this. His humanity. His humanity says, you will find a baby. You know, um, a lot of times we'll, we'll, people will look at the Greek, and, and they'll, they'll say, okay, well, the Greek meaning of this word is this, so it helps us explain it to what it is in English. You know what the Greek word for baby means? Baby. That's right. That's right. It, it's very simple. It's just an infant. It's just a, a baby. He came as a baby. And, and I'm not sure if that, that is just mind-boggling to you or not, but it is to me. He, he came as a baby. He came just like anybody else. Even though we speak of the virgin birth, he was conceived and he was born. And he was born just like you and he was born just like me. And you know why that's important? Because one of the things that, that we hold on to as a Christian is the fact that Jesus was 100% God yet 100% man. He wasn't half and half. He wasn't 60-40. He was 100 and 100. And for us, the mystery of that is hard for us to wrap our mind around. He laid aside his, his deity and his outward glory, but he still was 100% God and yet 100% man. And that he was going to walk and he was going to live and he was going to do this. That is the central truth of Christianity, is it not? Because if he had not been born, then he could not have lived, and which means he could not have died, and he could not have died for you and died for me. That is the central truth which everything else flows from. That is so important that he came as a man. He had to become like us in order to save us, and there was no other way. So the first thing we see is he's lying in this manger, or that he's born as a baby. The second thing we see is he's wrapped in cloths. And you might say, well, what's this wrapped in cloths have anything to do with? Why is it mentioned? Well, I believe it tells us about his helplessness. First, we see his humanity. The second thing we see is his helplessness. As we see his helplessness, you have to understand, and there's a couple of things we're going to talk about with this wrapped in cloth thing here. But the first thing I want you to see is this. He was a helpless baby boy who came into this world. And the wrapped in cloth was actually a thing that they did during those days to keep away infection. The infant mortality rate was high, and it was because of infection, so they would wrap them basically like a baby mummy to keep disease away from them, as well as help them feel like they were still in the womb to help that transition take place. I mean, we still swaddle today. But even in that, it was a very specific thing to show his helplessness. I also wonder... If it was a sign of things to come, 
30 plus years later. When at that point in time, he was bound and he was helpless. And the end of his life, as he stood before Pilate and the judges, he was bound in chains and helpless to do anything against it because he knew what he had to do. And both when he came and when he went, he was bound and he was helpless. Maybe it was a foreshadowing. And that's why it even mentions the swaddling cloths. Maybe it's something else that we'll talk about here shortly. But as we, as we look at that, you know, he could have at any point in time taken his, his heavenly advantage, if you will. I mean, he had all of the say that he wanted to have. His, his prerogative could have been placed out there. He could have said, I want to be born in a nice hospital and have nice care. And all of these things, he could have said any of those things, but at the right time, at the right place, the right part in history, he came. And he did it in this way for a very specific reason. And once again, when we read the story so quickly, we miss those details. This is where that amazingness comes in. This is where the awesomeness of the story comes in. The fact that he's a human. The fact that he was helpless. The third thing is, it's the fact that he was humble. See, he was lying in a manger. I told you that this is, this is not some amazing barn that is well insulated, that had lots of stuff like that. I told you even last week, he probably had to move uh, manure and things out of the way to, to make this happen. And, and it was just... Just an open whole cave, not that deep into it. Some rocks built around it to keep the animals in, and a feeding trough in the middle. That was it. You know, uh, when we think about the Christmas story and, and how we're like, okay, well, yeah, there was there was the angel Gabriel, and then there was Mary, and then there was Elizabeth, and then they they had to go to go to Bethlehem, and the, they got stuck behind the village inn, and uh, they they were well, that doesn't sound right. They didn't get. In in the village because I don't think they got because they could have gone for pancakes and stuff like that. But the the idea of of um you know they got stuck in this little spot and the baby was born and, and the shepherds came and we have this this okay that's the story and we know that but look how much more amazing it is by this humility that, that God of the universe stepped down to be born and lying in this simple manger and that is so crazy to see. This, this manger, there, there's nothing about it that was mind-blowing. But yet, if you look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, it talks about his humility. It talks about he took himself on and, and took on the form of, of a servant, the very nature made in human likeness. He made himself nothing. He lowered himself to a servant. Why? For us, for you, for me. The humility is there. There's nothing about this baby that appeared supernatural. Yet, it was the most supernatural thing that's ever happened. And I think about that, and I think about how amazing it is that God would come down. But we miss it because of the familiarity of the story. But God works that miracle in it, and he works it out for our good. And as I began to focus on that one verse, and I said, okay, that's it. Let, let's take a little different look and a little different angle. And as we look from this other angle over here, we're going to go to a, a passage that we've used over the last three weeks already. And it's in John chapter 1. And as John writes this, this story about the, the beginning of Jesus, all the other ones talk about the, the, the history. They all talk about the, the steps it took. But John writes it in such a different way, a very poetic way. I want you to, to hear what he has to say as he writes about the, the, the coming of Jesus Christ. And it says this in John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not, not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. 
The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Skipping down to verse 9, it says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did not receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We see this. We see this picture that John is painting for us. We see the picture that Luke is painting for us. And and the question that comes to my mind is, who is this baby? And I think it's a question that we all have to ask. And as we we look at the Christmas story, as we celebrate Christmas, and we celebrate all the things that are going on, the question is, is, who is this baby to you? Who is this baby to me? And we have to answer that question on our own, really, because I can't answer it for you. I can tell you the answer, but I can do that for lots of things. And you still have to be the one who makes the decision, if you believe that's the truth. Consider for the moment that even as we looked at this, this manger, and even as we looked at this humanity and the humility and the helplessness that, that is lying in this manger, and the claims that will eventually come from it. I mean, just think about the circumstances. I mean, the mother is an ordinary mother, just a 13-year-old girl, nobody special. But God made her special to use her in such a way. And, and her husband-to-be, Joseph, nothing special about him, nothing special about the town they're growing up in, nothing special about any of the things that are going to take place. Yet, the Savior is going to be born. And that's what the angel said. A Savior is going to be born. The Savior has been born to you this day in this little town called Bethlehem. And as that Savior that was just this baby, I can't imagine the shepherds walking up and going, yeah, that's the Savior. But it was. And as that baby grew, he, he made some crazy claims. Think about the crazy claims that he made. One of them, he talked about being the bread of heaven and the water of life. And I do find it kind of funny that, uh, that God, he works in these weird coincidences. We've kind of talked about it before. But do you know that Bethlehem actually means the house of bread? And yet, the bread of life was born in Bethlehem. It's kind of one of those weird little things like that. But he made the claim of being that bread of life and the water of life. And the only thing you thirst for and the only thing that you hunger for that he can fill is that, that desire for salvation, that desire for meaning. And in that, we, we see these other radical claims that he comes out with, and he claims to be the way. He claims to be the truth, and he claims to be the life. He claims to be the, the, the salvation for sins. He claims that, that he have all authority in heaven and earth. He claims that he'll return to judge the world in his righteousness. He, he throws out all of these claims, and we look at those, and we say, what's important about these claims? What's important about this baby? What is it that you believe? See, there's so many different people that believe so many different things about Jesus. Some people say, man, he was just a great teacher and a great prophet. Others say, you know, he, he was a, a way to God, but he's not the only son of God. And Christianity believes he is the way, the truth, and the life. Now, who's right? Who's wrong? What do you believe? And as you look at that, you have to think to yourself, well, isn't it possible that he isn't the only way to God? Isn't it possible that he was just a really good teacher that that was recorded throughout history? 
let me just tell you something. C.S. Lewis does a great job of breaking that down. And as he does a great job of breaking that down, what he basically says is this. See, it's not possible for Jesus to be just a great prophet and a great teacher. And the reason why is because of all the claims that he made. See, either he is what he claimed to be, which is the Lord of all, or he's completely crazy for saying all the things that he said. So he's out of his mind, and as C.S. Lewis put, he's a lunatic. Or he is just plain, flat a liar. He cannot be just a great prophet and a teacher. He is either Lord of all, as he claimed to be, he's a liar, and he's not what he claimed to be, or he's out of his mind. Which one is it? How do we break that down? What is it that you believe as you look at those claims in all of this? And I looked at it, and I said, you know, there's so much that we think about with the idea of who Jesus is, and what do you see Jesus as? Is Jesus just that picture that you see on the wall, the the beautiful, white-skinned, blue-eyed, feathered-hair, well-manicured beard little dude that that we pray to? By the way, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. Never met anybody from the Middle East that looks like that. But um, the, the thing is, is that we have this picture of who Jesus is. But then there's who he claimed to be. Is it who you've made him to be, or is it who he's claimed to be? Who is he in your life? And who is he in your life? And I began to think about this manger and some of the things that we talked about last week. And, and in my studies, I, I, I came across something that was very interesting. And it's a theory that, that came out 120 years ago. And it's been talked about, and nothing's been fully proven, but everything seems to point towards this theory that God, once again, works in these weird coincidences. And this theory, it's a a word, I went and saw Star Wars on on Thursday night, and I promise this word didn't come from going to see Star Wars on Thursday night, but it's Migdal Ader. And maybe you've heard those words before. It sounds like a Star Wars planet, but it's a real deal, and it actually starts being mentioned in Genesis chapter 35. And Migdal Ader, as mentioned in Genesis chapter 35, it kind of takes this, uh, this unfolding of this story, this plan that we've talked about, the miracle of Christmas, and how it all kind of plays itself out. Let me read to you what it is. I'm going to give you some bits and pieces, and then I'm going to tie it all together for you with this Migdal Ader. And looking at this manger and how much this manger really means as it points to the cross. Migdal Ader means the tower of the flock. And it's first mentioned in Genesis chapter 35, and this is what it says in Genesis chapter 35, verse 19. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. So Bethlehem's been around for a long time. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent near the town of Ader. So there's this tower of Ader, which is Migdal Ader. That's what it is. It's the tower of the flock, and it's located near Bethlehem. About a thousand years after Rachel's death, a guy by the name of Micah, a prophet by the name of Micah, who you may or may not have heard of before, he's part of that Christmas story that becomes kind of lost in translation sometimes. In Micah 5.2, he's one of the prophets that says that, that Jesus is going to be born, or the Savior is going to be born in Bethlehem. And we see that and we say, wow, that's cool. Born in the house of bread, he's going to be the bread of life. How, how cool is that that ties in together? But there's something more that he actually mentions before that. And it has to do with this Migdal Eder. And it says in verse 8 of chapter 4, it says, And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. 
This tower of the flock, this Migdal Eder, this is where it's going to come to. And it's also believed that this Migdal Eder, even throughout time, even throughout history, it was actually set aside as something very special. And what was set aside that was so special about it is there were shepherds that would stay there. And the shepherds that would stay there were watching over a very specific flock. And that very specific flock was actually the flock, and it's still believed to this day, still the, the, the flock was, that is where the Passover lambs were watched. That is when a, a, a lamb would be born, and it would be the first male lamb that was born, and they would check it and inspect it for, for blemishes or imperfection. If it didn't have any, they would set it aside, and it would raise up and be watched over carefully to be set aside as a Passover lamb to, to, to basically pay for the sins of the people of the time. Now, the crazy thing is, is what I want to do, now I've given you all three of these pieces here, I want to piece this all together as to where it's at near Bethlehem, who did all the work there, the shepherds, and what was born there, the Passover lamb. And as you look at this story unfold over thousands of years, you can kind of look and say, okay, so we have Bethlehem, the place, this city, there's a region that's there, Passover lambs are kept there specifically to become a sacrifice. Specially trained shepherds were there to watch over this at the Tower of the Flock. One other detail I didn't let you know about is that when they would be set aside, they'd actually be wrapped in swaddling cloths to keep from getting blemishes. And you you see this story play itself out, that it wasn't just coincidence that, that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And the shepherds, who, as the theory may say, were actually the ones who watched over Migdal Ader the ones who watched over the Passover lambs, that they would be the first one to go and meet the Savior of the world. The ones who would end basically their jobs because there would be no need for a Passover lamb anymore because the ultimate lamb, the ultimate sacrifice had been born. And guess what? It had been set aside from the very beginning, wrapped in cloth, because it would be without sin and without blemish. I'm not sure about you, but God works in some crazy coincidences. And to see that play itself out and to see the way that God is who he is and the way that he sent his son to do this and the claims that were made and we see it all really point to what we can, we can believe or what we can't. The question is, is do you? Do you believe? And I don't mean believe as just an knowledge of, yeah, I believe that, that's good. But do you believe, as in you believe that chair you sat in today would hold you up? Do you believe that Jesus Christ truly is the Son of God who will hold you up? Who will lift you out of the mire? Who will lift you out of the muck? Who will lift you and carry you before, before God and be your representation? Do you believe? Do you trust in that? See, we all have to consider this question for ourselves. Nobody can decide what comes from this miracle of the manger except for you. You are the one that has to make the decision. You are the one that has to look at that and say, I believe that baby in the manger wasn't just some great teacher or prophet to be. I believe he is the Son of God. I believe that he is the Lord of my life. I believe that he is the only way to salvation. That is something you have to make the decision on. And maybe today's the day you have to make that decision. Or maybe today's the day you just have to be reminded about how awesome that story is. Because like I said, it can become so familiar. 
And that familiarity can breed that contempt. And as it breeds contempt, it holds us back from, from what is real. It holds us back from the amazingness and awesomeness that God invaded human history to be our salvation. That's a story that either you need to grasp a hold of or that you need to remember and share with others as we celebrate this Christmas season. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for who you are. And thank you for what you've done. And thank you for the option to be able to believe in you. We even think about in the book of Matthew where you're talking to your followers and you ask the disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they answer, John the Baptist or Elijah or others. Jeremiah, one of the prophets, and he said, but who, who do you say? And Simon Peter said, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. God, you ask us the same question. Who do you say? Who do you believe? Is this just a baby in a manger that we celebrate his birthday once a year with lots of pomp and lots of circumstance and lots of time going to church? Or is he something more? Is he your Savior? Is he the Lord of your life? Do we believe? God, as you work in hearts and minds in here, I'm just grateful that you've opened my heart and my mind, even over the last four weeks, to the truth of this story. That's not just a story we read on December 25th, but it's a story we live every day of our lives, that a Savior came to be born for us, that I might live and have a relationship with you. God, if there's anybody in here that, that is struggling with that, I would love for you to be working in their hearts and give them an opportunity to talk to me today. If there's anybody in here that has lost the amazingness of that, man, rekindle that fire in their heart about how awesome it is that you came to save. We pray it in your name. Amen.